This is Docera Digest Podcast, breaking down health concepts. This podcast is brought to you by Docera Life Center. This innovative clinic is finding new solutions to the evolving challenges mankind faces in the 21st century. By utilizing cutting edge technology and testing, they find root causes and also offer treatment with energy and nutrition. What is the mission? To dynamically change lives for the better while impacting families for generations. The information shared directly or indirectly in the Docera Digest podcast is not to be understood as or misconstrued as medical advice. This information is not a replacement for your current health provider who is acutely aware of your current health state and course of treatment. Any information shared about a product or service discussed by any host or guest on this podcast is not to be interpreted as a doctor-patient relationship. Hi, I'm Dr. Craig Farney, and we want to welcome you to another episode of Docere Digest, where we take complex issues and break them down into digestible bites. Today, we're going to start a new series on parasites. Now, before we start this series, I want to actually tie or uh, discuss some myths and misconceptions regarding parasites. So the first one I want to talk about is most of us here, especially in America, have this idea that parasites, that's a third world country issue. In America, we're clean. We have good sanitation. We have good health care and good hygiene. So we don't have parasites, right? Oh. So even though parasites more, are more prevalent in third world countries, like Dr. Lou's going to discuss here in a little bit, we have parasites in America. And I think there's a couple of things that people don't take into account. For one, we are way more of a global community than we ever used to be. We're eating foods and are exposed to people that a couple hundred years ago would not have occurred. So the other thing that I find interesting is most of the industrialized countries around the world actually have kind of an annual or a regular parasite treatment program. So why don't we? So the second myth I've, <clears throat> I came across was most of us tend to think, well, that's an animal issue, not a human issue, especially here in America. So, mm -hmm. you know, Pets and cattle and horses are regularly dewormed, but why not humans? So, and here's the other thing I thought about. Okay, if, if we believe that it's an animal issue and we have pets and we're getting in their face, why are we going to think that we're not going to get them as well? And the other part, too, is humans are a typical part of most parasite life cycles. So I found it interesting. I was visiting a website and it was actually a, a, a veterinary website that was talking about myths and misconceptions. And it was some of the same basic concepts that uh, apply to humans. The third thing that I found is most of the time we have this idea, well, if it doesn't show up in a test, then it doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. And I think this even really ties into most of the medical community has kind of taught this concept that parasites are a rare condition and if, and if they don't exist in the testing, they don't exist. And so I think this leads to kind of a mindset, especially here in America, that creates this disconnect between what we experience and what is actually going on. The other final interesting thing that I think occurs as well is that in the initial uh, infectious process, most of the time it's asymptomatic. In fact, one article I read, it says as much as 70% of parasite infections are asymptomatic. So what I think it does is it creates this uh, disconnect between some of the symptoms people are experiencing and the possibility of parasites being the causation of those conditions. 
So any other myths or misconceptions you guys have come across? It says a lot of them. Yeah, that covers most of them. I think that uh, 70% of uh, asymptomatic is for a long period of time. And right. eventually it'll right. all come to a conclusion where right. it comes to right. Right. a point where yeah, it does. That's typically in the initial stages. that, And I think that's where it can be difficult to make that disconnect. Someone may have traveled to a foreign country. And if they don't get the full-blown illness and they just have this slow developing thing over a long period of time, they don't make that connection of, oh, my joint pain or my bowel issues or my hormonal issues, which we're going to talk about more in depth later, is because I went to this foreign country and I got exposed to a parasite or even something here local that I got exposed to. Like Montezuma's Revenge or something? Exactly. (laughs) Okay, I got to sneak this story in. It it doesn't really have, it it does kind of sort of applies to parasites. So here we go again. (laughs) Exactly. No, this is a good, when my wife and I went on our uh, 10th anniversary, we were going to Cancun and I had always heard that Montezuma's Revenge, you know, don't drink the water. And so me being the wise guy that I, I am, I bought a case of water to take with us to Mexico. So that was before the uh, three ounce rule on the flights. Oh, yeah, way before that. Yeah. It, it was also not realizing we're staying at a resort that has its own water treatment system and all this stuff. So we spent a lot of time pouring water into the bathtub, drinking water. <laughs> Maybe I had a parasite in the brain to begin with. But, but that is true. There is a lot of people that travel to like Mexico, the Caribbean or, or whatever. Right. Well, and, and and those are issues that they come back with. Right. You know? It also ties into this misconception of what does it really mean to have a parasite infection? You know, right. again, back to the medical community, it, it gets that idea. If you don't have the full blown disease, well, you don't have parasites. Right. So there's well, a, oh, if you don't mind me interrupting no here. There's a uh, TV show called The Monsters Inside Me. And one of the interesting uh, episodes was there is a medical doctor in New York. And he got in a car wreck, and then he got really sick. And he had grown up in India and then moved to the United States. And he was getting really sick, and they couldn't figure out what was wrong with him. So his daughter had become a doctor, and they said, well, we're going to do a little surgery. We're going to do what we call a sneak and shriek, and they're going to cut him open see what happens. When they cut him open, all these worms just poured out of him. Now, he's in his 60s at this point. And they go, well, the only place he would have got these would have been as a kid in India. I don't know if that's true or not, but if that's the case, that means that for decades, this medical right. doctor had been carrying these things and dealing with this until he got to the point where he was in a car wreck and he had so much stress on his body, it couldn't resist or fight it off or keep it in check and balance. And then everything kind of went sideways on him. Yeah. Well, and that, that actually ties into one other thing I, I actually didn't mention that, and I'm sure you're going to cover this a little bit in the testing aspect, is we tend to think of parasites in the worm form. But 70 to 60, 70% of them are, are microscopic and you can't even see them with the naked eye. Mm-hmm. So, and that makes it even more difficult to find on testing. So, any other thoughts, gentlemen, before I hand it over to Dr. Luke? And he's going to talk about prevalence, kind of like how the solid gray shirts are prevalent in this group. <laughs> ha ha. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Craig. Um, like he said, I want to talk about prevalence, um, specifically how prevalent. Um, Parasite infections are in the Western world, especially in the United States. Um, but to start, before I dive into stats and all that, um, I just thought it was kind of a go figure moment that as I'm studying and preparing for the show notes here for the episodes we're recording on parasites, I was just, you know, kind of scrolling social media mindlessly over, you know, some downtime. And the, one of the first things I saw was a story about a college kid who was in Florida recently, and he was out on the beach all day. 
and he showered with his contacts in after he'd been out on the beach all day and then accidentally fell asleep with his contacts in. And the next morning he could not see out of his right eye. There was swelling and redness and he had lost his sight. And it turns out that the culprit was a parasite that had been stuck and got lodged between his eye and his contact and had damaged his eye beyond repair. Mm. So I bring up that story simply because, like I said, this was a college kid in Florida, right? This wasn't a kid in a third world country. Um, and, and these things can and do happen. And this is going to come, this next quote is going to come from the horse's mouth. So according to the CDC, most people think that a parasitic disease uh, is occurring in poor and developing countries, and it's something they might pick up on an overseas trip. However, Parasitic infections still occur in the United States in the United States and affect millions of people. Often they can go unnoticed with few symptoms, but many times these infections cause serious illness, including seizures, blindness, heart failure, and even death. That's, that's straight from the CDC. So I think it was really weird doing research on you know stats and prevalence of what we know. Right. And it was, it was kind of odd for me being the doctor and provider that I am being like, yes, yes, yes. And so I think more and more people are becoming more aware of this. So it was kind of encouraging going through some of this stuff uh, and reading up on it. So looking at some of the more common infect parasitic infections in the U S uh, one of the ones I wanted to hit on right off the bat was the pinworm or uh, enterobias vermicularis. And this really affects kids uh, under 18 and institutionalized patients. Uh, I think there was a study, I didn't have this included in my notes, but over at or over half of institutionalized patients do eventually get this particular uh, type of parasite infection. And I don't want to steal too much of Dr. Caleb Sunder because he's going to hit on transmission of how we pick up these things. But real briefly, you know, a person is infected with pinworm by ingesting the eggs directly or indirectly or via inhalation as well. Uh, and it's really common in kids because you think of how many surfaces kids are touching and then putting their hands in their mouth and then transmitting that to the family. So according to the National Institute of Health, pinworm affects 1 billion people worldwide, billion with a B, and up to 40 million people in the United States alone. And it infects us regard regardless of our status in society. So it does not discriminate whether you're in a a good financial social situation or a poor one. It was really interesting too, as I was perusing the CDC and looking for stats, there's actually an initiative that the CDC has taken where they're focused on the top five parasitic infections uh, for public health action. And those five are ones that, you know, we see in our office. And the first one is Chagas disease. And the next one is neurocystocirrhosis. Uh, toxocariasis, toxoplasmosis, and trichomoniasis. So let's start with the Chagas disease, which is, comes from the Trypanosoma cruzi uh, parasite. Did you know that Chagas disease can cause heart failure and death? And that currently there are an estimated 300,000 people living in the U.S. who are infected with the parasite that causes Chagas disease. More than 300 infected babies are born in the United States every year. And I thought this is really interesting. They started tracking uh, the transmission of Trypanosoma cruzi, which is, again, the parasite responsible for transmitting Chagas. They began tracking this in early 2007 with blood donors. 
and they mapped it from uh, from 2007 to July 2013. There had been more than 1,800 confirmed positive infections among blood donors that had been reported by blood centers. So keep in mind that's 10 years ago, almost 10 years ago. So that begs the question, where are we at now? Yeah. So interestingly enough, Dr. Kaisen brought this one to my attention. Um, one of the leading causes of non-ischemic heart failure in Central and South America is Chagas disease. Right. Mm-hmm. And Dr. Craig's going to hit on the tapeworm later, um, but neurocystocirrhosis is a, um, you know, kind of a, a, a basically a brain infection where the the tapeworm uh, infects the brain and causes damage and inflammation. And it is the single most common infectious cause of seizures in the United States. There are an estimated 1,000 new hospitalizations for neurocystocirrhosis each year in the United States. And interestingly enough, it is the leading cause of acquired epilepsy worldwide. Yeah. So this is not just something that's just obscure and affecting the random crowd of chronic illness patients who don't have any answers. This is widespread and prevalent. Uh, the next one that the CDC had listed was, was uh, toxocariasis which is a type of roundworm. And we'll get into the different types of parasites in a later episode, but it's a type of roundworm and it's a parasitic infection that comes from cats and dogs. Uh, and again, Dr. Caleb's going to hit more on the transmission, so I'll let him kind of touch on more of that. But the Toxocara parasite, once it's in the body, their eggs hatch and their larvae can travel to the bloodstream to different parts of the body, including the liver, heart, lungs, brain, muscle, or eyes. Most people infected don't have any symptoms, kind of like we've touched on already. However, in some people, the toxocara larvae can cause damage to these tissues and organs beyond repair. Uh, almost 14% of the United States population has been exposed to toxocara. And every year, an estimated 70 people, mainly children, are blinded by toxocariasis. And the true numbers are believed to be higher. <coughs> the next up is toxoplasmosis which is one of the leading causes of foodborne illness and death. And there's more than 60 million people in the United States chronically infected. And this causes infections in pregnant women, which can lead to birth defects in babies and infections in immunocompromised people, which can be deadly. And approximately 25 to 30% of the world population is infected with toxoplasmosis, which for those of you who are hard of math, um, that's anywhere from 1.92 to 2.3 billion people. Next up is trichomoniasis. This is um, one that can lead to an increased risk of HIV or serious pregnancy problems. And there's 3.7 million people in the United States who are affected. And then hookworm, uh, kind of getting into some of the ones that, that we see, this is beyond the CDC list. Now, hookworm is another common parasite infection that affects 576 to 740 million people worldwide. There's liver fluke, which affects nearly 17 million people in over 51 countries, and 91 million are at risk of being infected with this. Children are commonly infected with this, and there's 6,000 species of different flukes identified, and 100 of these are known to infect and cause damage in human beings. Another one that was interesting was cryptosporidium. So I have to credit Dr. Ben on a lot of this research I'm quoting here. Um, he went through and taught a lot of the internal medicine and functional medicine courses that a lot of us have taken. And his notes are still in circulation today. <laughs> and 
this was uh, looking at his notes 10 years ago. There is a type of crypto uh, parasite called cryptosporidium, and he's going to hit on that later too. Uh, it is the most frequent cause of recreational water related disease outbreaks in the U.S., with multiple outbreaks each year. And then this is what was interesting going back to his notes. So as I was looking through some of these things, 10 years ago, he had cited that there were 300,000 infections in the United States. Well, today, according to the CDC, there are an estimated 823,000 cryptosporidium cases annually in the United States. So. (laughs) And the next one is Giardia. This is a type of microscopic protozoa, bloodborne parasite that attacks the GI system. It is estimated that giardiasis causes more than 1.2 million illnesses annually in the United States alone. So as you can see, now that's a lot of numbers and different things, but I'm highlighting this to show just how widespread and more common this is than what we might be led on to believe, Uh, especially for patients who are seeking so desperately to find answers to their issues that no one's really been able to give them any reprieve on. and the last, last little stat I wanted to throw out was it is estimated that 80 to 90% of the world population has at least some form of parasite within them. Probably higher than that, but that's a conservative estimate. So we jokingly tell people it's not a matter of if you have parasite, but what kind do you have and is it causing you issues? And then I have to credit um, uh, Dr. Dr. Todd Watts with this one. A good cheap at-home test to determine if you have parasites is to take two fingers, press firmly against your neck, and do you feel that pulse? Congratulations, you probably have a parasite. <laughs> <laughs> so in all seriousness, we evaluate everyone who first comes in as a new patient to see whether or not they are dealing with parasites. And we do that by getting a thorough history as part of our diagnostic workup. It's simply something you cannot afford to miss as a doctor or provider at the onset. So you must rule that in or out while beginning care with a patient, even if it's seemingly unrelated to their issues. Uh, Because as you'll see, when we start getting to the symptoms in in the later episode, we'll see just how systemic and widespread these signs and symptoms are when dealing with patients who have parasites. Mm -hmm. So with that, I'm gonna go ahead and turn it over to Dr. Caleb, and he's gonna touch on transmission. All right, thank you, Dr. Luke. So like you said, I'm gonna be talking about modes of transmission, which in simpler terms is just how we get parasites. So this is going to be more of a general overview of how we get infected with parasites because I will go into a lot of this in greater detail um, in another episode when I talk about parasite life cycles and reproduction. And I also am not going to get into too many specific parasites because we, again, have a whole episode that's going to be designated to highlighting specific parasites or parasite groups that we consider to be significant concerns in the U.S. And uh, like Dr. Luke said, some of them are even on the uh, CDC's list of top neglected parasitic infections in the U.S. So I would like to go ahead and put a disclaimer out there in advance that this section will certainly be interesting, but some may find it also a little disturbing to hear, and I'm sure that some of you, by the time I'm done, will probably start seriously considering the logistics of living inside a bubble. (laughs) So with that, let's go ahead and review the uh, four ways that pathogens or disease-causing organisms can actually enter the body. So we have inhalation, or what you breathe in, gets into the lungs, get absorbed through the lungs into the bloodstream. You have ingestion, so what you eat or what you drink, that gets in the stomach, through the GI tract, and the intestines can get absorbed or, you know, used in um, 
you know, infect in different ways. Skin contact, if something can actually absorb through the skin, and then breaking a barrier, which is most often through a puncture wound in the skin. Now, this commonly occurs with needles or with insects that break through the skin, such as mosquitoes and ticks. So parasitic infections occur due to interactions of an unsuspecting potential host with contaminated sources. But before I start listing those sources off, I want to talk about how these sources become contaminated and what they're contaminated with. So many parasites uh, throughout their life cycles live in the intestines or go to the intestines of their host and more specifically to the anus to release their eggs so the eggs can go out with the feces. So mo most sources become contaminated because of the presence of fecal material or fecal residue that is infected with these parasitic eggs. Um, so what are some of the common areas that are contaminated and then become sources for us to pick up, uh, to pick up the parasites? So the first one I wanna talk about is soil because this is actually kind of the main avenue that a lot of the other sources pick up the parasites and then eventually pass them on to us. So this is typically the initial contamination point and usually this happens because an infected animal, whether it's a rodent or bird, mammal, whatever, it defecates on the ground which leaves the egg deposits and then those eggs wait for the right opportunity to infect a suitable host. So some eggs can survive in a dormant stage for months or even years before the right opportunity comes along to infect a host. So one unique type of parasite that we're gonna talk about uh, in more depth in another episode can actually burrow through the sole of the foot and is a common mode of infection in warmer climates where people are more inclined to walk barefoot or in sandals. So like uh, when Dr. Luke was talking about that, a uh, college student that was on the beach all day, you know, th that would be a prime source to pick up this type of parasite. So gardening is another way that uh, some people can get infected. You know, if uh, animals have gone around the garden or around the plants, you know, and we're working on those, if we don't have proper gloves on or other, uh, you know, protective measures, then it's easy for us to get infected that way. Also related to the garden is food, so especially unwashed vegetables. So again, vegetables can get contaminated by animals that defecate around the garden. And, you know, if we don't wash those thoroughly or carefully, you know, those can actually enter into us that way. Uh, fruits are less commonly contaminated because most of those are in trees and off the ground, but fruit that has fallen to the ground will have a greater likelihood of contamination. A big food source is undercooked infected meats. So you think about the type of food that we eat, pork, you know, beef, fish, all these different um, types of animals that we eat on a regular basis, they can get a hold of these parasites or these parasites can get a hold of them. And uh, eventually, you know, they'll release those or some of those can actually create little cysts, which is kind of like eggs or little dormant um pockets in the muscle tissue and then when we eat those if we haven't cooked them properly um, that can be a primary source that we get a lot of different types of um, infections or parasites specifically tapeworms uh, are big in all sorts of different types of meats which Dr. Craig will cover a lot more in depth on an, uh, another episode. So with that being said I used to be a medium rare guy when it came to steaks but 
Lately, I've become more of a medium well guy. <laughs> Can't quite go well done. It's a little too dry for me, but I don't need a whole lot of steaks anyway. So, <laughs> but yeah, make sure your, your meats are cooked. So another big source, like we talked about with the cryptosporidium is water. So this is often due to rain washing the fecal material or residue down into bodies of water. So that's why clean drinking water is absolutely important and is one of the major reasons why underdeveloped countries struggle so much with parasites because they don't have the proper filtration uh, and you know uh, processes to clean that water from those parasites. And even the best ones that we have sometimes miss. You know, it's, it's none of our filtration processes are completely perfect. So even it, with all the sources and all the ways we go through cleaning our water, sometimes things can still get missed. But another way that we get it is, again, through swimming or even fishing in ponds or lakes, you know, with the rain washing the uh, fecal matter down into that or the residue, you know, a lot of those can get infected with all sorts of different parasites, especially the protozoans or the microscopic ones. They'll just float around in there. And um, being in a pond or lake, you know, it's able to just kind of sit there and more easily interact with potential hosts that enters the water. Rivers can carry them too, but with the flowing water, it's less likely or, you know, there's a smaller chance of getting infected with that. We already talked about pets. So some parasites are quite fond of cats and dogs and outdoor pets especially have greater opportunities for parasite exposure. Um, so pet owners need to be very careful with how they clean up the, their pet's feces basically. And other types of pets can be prone to various types of parasites as well. So careful regulation of food and water is important to minimize risk. So a lot of parasites uh, also have different type of vectors or different ways of getting into us. And some of them use insects. A big one is mosquitoes. Um, one of the most famous types of parasites is the plasmodium parasites responsible for malaria. You know, these are transmitted through uh, mosquitoes. Now, most of us probably tend to think of malaria as primarily an issue in Africa, but there's actually about 2000 cases diagnosed in the U.S. every year. So it's not just restricted to certain regions. Again, like Dr. Craig mentioned earlier, we're more of a global community. We're spreading things all over that we didn't used to before. Ticks are another good source. Uh, I talked about Babesio when we were going through our Lyme disease uh, series. You know, that was a, that's a common co-infection. That's another um, parasite that can, you know, get transmitted through the the process of the tick feeding on our blood. Fees and, fleas and mites can also transmit other types. Um, some more rare transmission modes, um, we talked about how some can be in the blood. So blood transfusions or organ transplants. Um, even though we do, we try to do the best we can with checking blood and regulating, you know, finding those, sometimes that can be missed and there can be transmission through those type of processes. There are a couple that are actually transmitted through sexual contact as well, such as trichomoniasis and giardia that Dr. Luke was talking about. Um, again, some of them uh, can actually be transmitted through inhalation. This is going to be usually more of the protozoans, the microscopic ones, um, but there's more research being done to see how um, a lot of those can be transmitted in different ways. 
All right, so hopefully I didn't give you guys any nightmares and it's not too disturbing. If not, we have plenty of other episodes to give you those opportunities. <laughs> um, but uh, I think I'm going to go ahead and turn over to Dr. Ben, and he's going to talk about the world of twos. <laughs> wow, if you're not squeamish before, maybe you will be now. <laughs> just don't do anything. Yeah, yeah, just how do you stay away from all these? Well, know, just right? so you know, I've invested in bovelife.org, and you can go through. No, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's the interesting thing is when we look at this and all these parasites, and as we've already talked about, we're going to talk about this in multiple different series. We'll, we'll kind of touch these in a lot of different ways, but the world of parasites is something that's not really new to the planet, but it's new to us in, in the sense of what we talk about. And yet for thousands of years, these parasites have been adapting and processing. We're going to go through a lot of that later. But what I want to do is I want to dive into that world of parasites, kind of talk about it. Some of it we've already talked about in the sense of what they are and how they are. And so what I'm going to try to do is frame the world so we have some understanding of what it is. And it used to be for years, you know, many doctors in the parasitical world, a parasite specialist, talked about the world of two. And basically what that came down to is there's two basic types of parasites we look at. And then they're basically in two different areas. Well, I'm going to kind of split that apart today. We're going to go a little bit deeper into that. So when we talk about the types of parasites, there's what we in the world of two, there's two different categories that we want to refer to. One is called the ectoparasites. And ectoparasites are those that live on the body, as the doctors mentioned earlier, whether we talk about ticks and, li and lice and all those different components. And then we have the endoparasites. And in the endoparasites, we have two different divisions of the endoparasites. So keep in mind that when we talk about the endoparasites, most people are concerned or most people think that they are either in the intestinal tract or they live in the blood. What we want to find out as we kind of go through this is that they can go anywhere in the body. They can affect anything about the body, right? And those that are in the intestinal tract generally we think are destined to live and reproduce and grow whatever inside the intestinal tract. And then those in the blood, we think that they just turn into some of the different flukes, some of the different factors. But what we know now is they can go anywhere, right? Mm -hmm. And once they get out of the blood, then they can go anywhere through the interstitial space. So think of things like, I've been mentioned earlier, the brain, the liver, the, key, the kidneys, the spleen, the heart, under the skin, even in the reproductive organs, but mainly they live and travel through what we call the interstitial space. And that's the space between things. So when you think of blood and intestinal tract and cells, in between there is a space that things kind of move and go through. Now, more recently, the scientists are, are kind of changing some of the terminology. And, you know, as, as Dr. Caleb brought up, whether they're a foreign invader or whether they're an infectious agent, those are some different terminology that we're talking about. So I want to dive into some of those aspects. And that first category I'm going to dive into is the endoparasites, right? Now, the two sections of endoparasites that we want to reference is, number one, the protozoas, which we brought up. And these are microscopic one-celled organisms that can be free-living or parasitical in nature, meaning they can live on their own or they can go into a plant, you know, even grass or leaves or trees or flowers, let alone any other animal, let alone any other viral, bacterial, or fungal issue, they can get into some of those as well. They're able to um, travel, as, as Dr. Kidd was talking about, in molecules of air, let me rephrase that, on molecules of air, or in molecules of water. So maybe we should stop breathing, stop drinking. 
Or maybe that's why they drink alcohol to clear all that out. I'm just kidding you. <laughs> we also know that protozoa that live in the blood tissue can be transmitted to humans, as Dr. Kim talked about, by mosquitoes, even flies. So protozoas have some pretty unique commonalities that we look at. And the biggest thing that we're, we're looking at after talking about the transmission is what is their mode of movement in the body? And this is where it gets kind of funny. So we talked about the amoebas, and they have the ability to change their shape, right? They can extend or retract what is called a pseudopod, and so it's kind of like they walk or move, move all around. The flagellates have oar-like motions, and they have these three-dimensional waves that move them forward or move them backwards. Then we talked about the ciliates, which they have little hair-like, finger-like things that help them move and crawl and eat and dig and get into things. And then we have the sporozoans, and what's interesting about the sporozoans is once they get into a cell or they get into a tissue and they've established themselves, they rarely move. Or we think they have a gliding motion, but what we do know is instead of moving around, they incubate. And then they start creating and developing, and then they release not just eggs, but they'll actually release more parasitical components that then go out and produce more eggs. Wow. Aren't you glad we found that all out? <laughs> then the second type of endoparasites, again, we're still in the endoparasites, are the helmets. And we've talked about these things. And when most people think of the word parasite, they think of what? Worms, right? And in fact, that is what helmet is. It's Greek for worms. And so when we look at that, we have to understand that rarely do we see adults stage worms in our body. They're more of the rarer side that we think about. When we talk about the hundreds and hundreds of different types of parasites, there are about 25 or 26 that are really big and long, right? I'll, I'll cover a couple of those here in just a second. But I want to remind us that helmets can also be free living out in the world, right? They can lay on the ground. They can develop on the ground. They can have their, well, I'll go through all their forms here in a second. And once they get into our body, they cause some pretty serious health issues. In fact, Ascaris lumbricodes is one of those ones that when we talked about the doctor in New York, all right, that they opened up his body and here's all these worms come out. We've had patients that have actually had that actual thing. They went in for a intestinal surgery for some reason or a gallbladder attack and all of a sudden here's several hundred different worms inside the body and patients didn't even know they had them. So when I talk about helmets, there's basically three different major groups we, we refer to. And the first one of what we refer to as flatworms. Now, these are trematodes, which we know as flukes, and they're the cestodes, which are the tapeworms themselves. Now, what's interesting is tapeworm gets long and a fluke doesn't have to get long, but it has more of the oar-like processes. It can move around, it gets into anything and everything. It gets between cells, right? And so it does its damage that way. Then we have a unique one, all right? And this is what we call the middle parasite. And the thorny-headed worm, just imagine what that looks like. You know, aren't you glad we aren't showing you pictures of both in and out? Anyway, and these adult forms primarily live in the digestive tract or inside the gut themselves, right? And we think they're somewhere between a trematode and cestode. But then when we get to look at the nematodes, that's the worm that we're all, all familiar with, right? And they resist where? I mean, they can exist where? We think in the gut, and that's where a lot of them show up. But we also know a lot of them show up in the blood, and we also know a lot of them show up in different organs, all right? So we've talked about things like roundworms, hookworms, flukes, specifically 
Uh oh, my battery's running low. Specifically, the liver, the lungs, the blood, and then tapeworms and beef, pork, fish, as have been mentioned before. And then there's the whipworm, the pinworm, the gear worm, even the horsetail worm. They're so small, they look like a thread of cotton, right? In fact, we see them in a lot of cotton. And then there's the lymphatic filariasis or the elephantitis, right, that spread through the mosquito bites and affect the limb system. Now, some people think they have a worm if they see what they refer to as a ringworm appearance. I want to just separate that. A ringworm is not a worm, right? A ringworm is actually a, uh, a fungal issue, right? So some of the more commonly documented ectoparasites, bed bugs, right? How many of us have always had jokes or told stories about bed bugs? Fleas, lice, what are called the uh, domodexes, which are the, those that live in hair follicles. And we see a lot of those in the eyelashes and the eyebrows and along the nap of the hairline or the borders of the hairline. Then we got the ticks, the mosquitoes. How about even chiggers? And then we have all the different mites from rodents or mice or rats. And then how about a body louse? How about a crab louse? Ooh, how about scabies? Yeah. And then a funny one that's really kind of interesting is called the screw worm. Now, what's interesting about the screw worm, it's really not a helmet or a worm that we think about, but it's larva from a fly that embeds its eggs into your skin, and then they develop a lot of different things. Now, who's loving mosquitoes and flies and ticks right about now, right? <laughs> so water. where can parasites live in the body? Well, we've talked about it everywhere, right? Not only in the body, but in the world. They live in everything and on everything, right? And what's been said is that there's a lot of people that have parasites. And so at some form or some stage in your body, you got one of these, if not multiple of these. And we're going to talk about how the body defends that and how the body fights that in later series or later episodes of the series. But how do we know if we have them? That's the big question, right? How can we go find them, find out if we have them, right? So we're going to let Dr. Kyson tell us how he finds them or how we go through and find them. So Dr. Kyson. All right. So I want to talk about some of the ways that we do testing and some of the issues that we have with our traditional lab testing. I have a lot of patients that have uh, come in to see me that I said, well, I did a stool test. Nothing showed up. And the way I look at laboratory testing, especially for parasites, is if something shows up, then we definitely have it. If it doesn't, when it comes to the world of parasites, that doesn't rule it out for me in any way. Yeah. It just means that there was something that happened or the technician who was doing the, the viewing of it on a slide didn't see it or didn't understand what they were looking at. And when I first started in practice over a decade ago with Dr. Bowers, we were doing a lot of stool testing and, and stool cultures and we're sending them in. And the company we're using we'd get all these great examples or a great list of all these parasites people had. So we were able to go back and find and treat and, and deal with them accordingly. And then that lab got bought out by another company and all of a sudden nobody had parasites anymore. It was like overnight. It was like, what's going on here? Why is the same, pre same presentation, same symptoms these other people had all of a sudden nobody's having them anymore. And what we found was when this company got bought out by the other lab company, the testing methodology they're using was owned by another company who didn't want this company to have that because they didn't like them. And so they didn't have that licensure. And so I believed it was a genetic way they were looking at it right. originally. 
And then with the new company, they're just taking the stool sample, put it on the slide, looking at, do we see anything there? And they weren't. Well, let me add to that. What's interesting about that is most of the stool cultures are computer-generated reports. And so what they do is they go, well, we need to have a humanistic touch to really see if they're accurate. So they'll take just a piece sample and they'll put it on that slide and look at it. And we think it's probably less than 20, 25%, if uh, that much that they're looking at. And if the... The, the person evaluating it doesn't see anything that they know, then it just gets passed on. Uh, nothing was shown, nothing was present, yeah. right? So the problem is that sense that it's technicians versus a knowledge of it versus if you take that same sample and send it to another another country that do this, oh, they'll find it immediately. So just kind of interesting how they changed all that. And on that note, not to interject too much here, but <clears throat> it's not like the sample that we're sending in is the only one they're looking at either. Right. So if they don't see it within what two to three minutes, let's say, right. it's on, it's negative, yeah. on to the next. So yeah, exactly. So what we found was there was a, a gentleman in Colorado that we came across, uh, Doctor Rafael D'Angelo, and this guy owns a company called the Para Wellness Research Institute, I believe, mm-hmm. and you can check it out. And this guy has been—he's a medical doctor who's he retired, and then he's just run the lab now because there's such a misdiagnosis of parasites and so it's really a passion of his he if i remember the story right he started off as a lab tech looking for parasites during the vietnam war and all the soldiers over there and so he had gone through and really developed a keen sense of being able to see these things and find these things and it was amazing taking the same sample from a patient and send it to two different labs and getting completely different results there so it really opened it back up saying okay this person knows what they're looking at, and they're able to find it. Not only that, but they're able to give you recommendations on the best ways to take care of it. So uh, big kudos to him. Uh, found a lot of stuff for us and really helped us a lot of patients. So the uh, the other side of testing really kind of depends on what kind of parasite we're dealing with, mm-hmm. what time of the day we take our stool sample, or what time of the month. You know, if we've seen eggs or things like that coming out. So... It's there's a lot of different things there that become issues. So lab failures are more or less just not finding it. And so if this is a commonality throughout the country, and I think there's a tendency for most of our traditional medical field to look at a lab and saying, if it's there, it's there. If it's not, it's not. And a lot of times what they'll do is they'll put um, parasites in their differential diagnosis, run the laboratory testing and go, nope, it's not there, on to the next thing. Which means they might have missed a big part of it and now they're chasing their tail trying to find other things that may not be there or they've missed the opportunity to really help a patient deal with something that's underlying that it will create all kinds of chronic issues and diseases later in life. And we're just now starting to see a whole lot more of these um, very common uh, chronic illnesses that people are dealing with actually try to find how to trace them back now to parasites. Yeah, what's interesting that, Dr. Kaisen, is when we really look at their ability to test, to diagnose, it's kind of like you said, it, they're missing the most obvious thing, right? And here's one of the things that we have found out. These parasites are so smart, so intelligent, they know how to become invisible. And therefore, and we're going to talk about here in another series, we'll kind of dive into this, but when they become invisible, they're undetectable. And yet they have changed and mutated so much that now they're going into what we call an adaptogenic mutagenic reaction within us, and we are becoming part of them instead of them becoming part of us. And so 
it's probably just been in the last decade that more and more research is showing, hey, we can't find them because we can't see them. So how can we look at different ways to see them so we know what they're doing? And there's a lot of research, I mean, just even the last five years where they're finding so many, as we've already talked about, so many here in America that we didn't even know existed. So if you, if you don't know what you're looking for, how are you ever going to see it? Right? So that's the interesting thing about where testing is going. It's changing. And then we talk about blood, saliva, urine, hair. Those are really the only things we can really test. And sometimes they're not in there. They're everywhere else. Okay? So that's part of your failures. And the other side, when we look at blood work, we're going to look at eosinophils and things like that, your white blood cells that react more specifically to parasites. Eosinophils, it always uh, cracks me up because it's known for, in what most medical doctors are to as, uh, food allergies and sensitivities. It does have something to do with parasites. But what we find is when you have parasites, you have all of these other things. Mm-hmm. On top of that, with parasites, you get an increase in eosinophilia, which actually causes a whole lot of lung issues and asthma, or even exercise-induced asthma can come from having parasitic infections that play into that. So being able to see that in a way that we can actually go through and treat that. Now, my frustration was tr- for years trying to help patients who had parasites because I knew they were there. I just couldn't find them or find out what kind of it was. That kind of led me down into using more adjunctive testing mm-hmm. and doing more of an energy testing kinesiology that allowed me to go back and do frequency matching to find some of these things and be able to figure out the most correct way to treat each one of these things individually based on what the patient needs right. and not just what's in the general common knowledge, but specifically for them. And so dealing with uh, parasites is always a, an interesting journey because it's not overnight. And you're going to find as we go through the rest of the series that there's a whole lot more going on to with parasites probably in your life than you ever thought. So uh, as we get through this first episode, the thought comes to my mind of the movie The Matrix where Morpheus offers uh, Neo the blue pill or the red pill. So um if you go to the second series and you keep going on with the next episode and you keep going, you have definitely taken the red pill. So <laughs> you're going to be out Welcome. of the matrix and you're going to be uh, learning a lot here. And the reality of the world isn't quite what you might have thought it was. And so uh, come join us on our journey. So join us for the next episode as we start to go in and look at more aspects of parasites in your life. Thank you for listening to the Docera Digest podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. You can also find all the episodes and show notes over at doceralifecenter.com. While you're on the website, also be sure to check out the blog where you'll find videos and articles to help you proactively rebalance your health.